everyone. Welcome back to Two Bar Stools and a Knife, our FIU hospitality podcast, talking about the hospitality industry and, you know, a little bit about us. Um, our first podcast last week started talking about the ins and outs of the industry, um, the ins and outs of quarantine, the ins and outs of us. And this week, our podcast is going to switch gears a little bit. Hey, everybody, how's it going? I'm uh, Nathan Dodge, one of the faculty instructors at FIU Chaplain School of Hospitality in tourism management, also one of the Bacardi Center of Excellence instructors. And with me, I've got Brian Connors and Chef John Noble Massey. Hi, gentlemen. How are you guys today? I am doing fantastic. Thanks so much, Professor Dodge. Let's see. What is new? Well, I've been doing a hell of a lot more baking than I have been in the past. And this week was banana bread week and cinnamon roll week. So I did those. That's very exciting. And, you know, it's one of the challenging things that we're, we're having. And I think that it's all trying to keep up with all of the stuff that we normally do. So I decided, I don't, you know, the guests that are here can't really see, but I actually gave myself a haircut this morning. And I think it looks fantastic, but I will defer to my colleagues to see what they're doing for their self-management as well as other things. John Massey, you're a beautiful man inside and out. We'll just leave it at that. Well, you know, it's also the first sign of insanity when someone, uh, you know, cuts their own hair. You're about two <laughs> steps away from cutting your ear off and moving to south of France. Well, you know, I did use the clippers. And so if I go like this, it is a little bit longer on top. And so. <laughs> Thank God the audience can't see it. <laughs> yes. Yes. We don't uh, want to yeah. scare anybody today. Yeah. On, even on the Massey front, though, um, I've noticed that productivity is still very, very high. Um, time management is still, um, you know, every day is, is kind of managing the time properly that we get our fair share of work done. And then, of course, uh, as Nathan said last week, the honeydew list. But I don't know about you, John Massey. Uh, I've been doing a lot of um, cooking again. Uh, as many as you know, uh, I'm a trained chef as well. And I still love the opportunities when I get to teach culinary and talk about culinary uh, as one of my passions. But, Johnny, I've been going back to the classics, man. I did a French-style roasted chicken the other night that was fantastic. You know, I basically stuffed the bird with fresh citrus, lemons, fresh garlic, uh, onions, other aromatics, if you will, and then roasted it right over uh, baby uh, Yukon gold potatoes, fresh carrots, a little bit of a mirepoix, but not a heavy, heavy mirepoix. And boy, uh, with a bottle of Pinot Noir on the back deck overlooking the water, um, last, late last week, it was fantastic. You are getting me excited about food. And I tell you, one of the things that also has excited me this week in particular, you know, we're winding down this semester. And one of the things that my students in the intro and advanced classes are doing are cooking recipes. They're submitting their pictures and videos online. And I'm getting to see them cook, not live, but at home. And then the passion that they have for cooking for their friends or family is exactly what you're talking about right there. And that's making me hungry already. Uh, Professor Dodge. You know, I'm very jealous. Last night was a uh, shake and bake and mashed potatoes for us at the Dodge household. Um, I, you know, I'm going to start breaking quarantine and coming over to your guys' house. I'm really jealous. Uh, no, I've, I have been cooking, but I am not the trained classical chef of these two fine gentlemen I have on, on the podcast this morning. 
Nothing wrong um, with shake and bake, baby. Shake no, and bake. no, shake and bake is good. You know, it's and don't sell yourself short. You you sent us pictures making crepes the other day, and those were amazing. Oh, the crepes were good. Crepes are the easiest thing in the world. It's a cup of flour, cup of milk, two eggs, three tablespoons melted butter. You need the crepe pan. I think crepe pan makes the the big difference because you can't get the uh, the spatula into a regular pan correctly. Crepe pan uh, from La Crusette. I'm going to throw a little shout out to my favorite uh, pan, pot and pan, the La Crusette pots and pans. I can't think of words this morning. It's a little early already for me. Uh, but no, I've been um, coming up with some old cocktails I haven't made in a while. You know, April is my my anniversary month. So a few years Woo-hoo. ago, our wedding itself was on hospitality at sea with a hundred college students and. John Thomas, Professor John Thomas, did the ceremony at a bar on a cruise ship. This is a tr- true story. But a year later, we went with the whole family. We went on a cruise to Bermuda, and in Bermuda, I, I had some I had a great time. But we had some great cocktails. We had the two cocktails of Bermuda, which is the rum swizzle and the dark and stormy. So I made those a couple times this week just to reminisce back on our anniversary and then going to Bermuda because we, we were going a little stir crazy in the Dodge Fagnon household. I don't know about you guys, but we are travelers. We are constantly Mm. on the road. We moss does not grow underneath our, our shoes. So we need to travel. We need to get out. So we're going a little crazy. So I'm trying to reminisce on some of our, our vacations. You know, before I give a quick program update, um, I didn't leave the house at all last week, except uh, I took my boat out on Sunday or Easter for a quick little cruise. You'd be surprised how many people were doing the same exact thing. You know, it's just couples and like their kids and the dogs, you know, there's no mass people. And it's only people that live on the water that can actually, you know, operate because there's no dockage or there's no ramps at the docks and there's no fuel. So you have to be pretty much self-efficient on the water. But there was a good amount of people out there. And my last plug before the update was, I love how a lot of the restaurants on the water, bring it back to industry, are surviving. One of our favorite restaurants to go to by water is Coconuts on the Intercoastal, right by the Swimming Hall of Fame. Had a big, and I mean a big, big, almost billboard size sign up outside facing the Intercoastal said, call in your order. And they bring it right out to the dock. Uh, the timing was impeccable because it just so happened we were running out of champagne. Uh, for, yes, for Easter. Uh, oh, so yeah. they called ahead and they were able to meet us on the dock with a bottle of bubbles, half price. And of course, I overtipped. And that overtipping is going to be our new normal as we go forward. I think there's going to be an article coming out when I talk about that. But, you know, we just felt so uh, happy they were there. And at the same time, it, it gave us a little sense of normalcy. And then we enjoyed the bottle of bubbles uh, back up the river to our house. So it was good stuff. So, a uh, quick little update on the program, guys. I know Nathan and Dodge and I are starting out this fall with three new courses. I had the opportunity, and I kind of check it on an almost a daily basis, registration for the new courses. They are all filling up nicely. Uh, I know Nathan's class as well as mine. But this is the interesting thing, guys, that I saw this morning, as a matter of fact. I took a deeper dive, started looking at who was enrolling. And for our introductory to global beverages, we're actually seeing students outside of the chaplain school signing up for the courses uh, from communications college and so forth. So I think this is also going to be a blatant plug to say, hey, you listeners, if you have friends even outside of the hospitality school, outside of chaplain, they can join it. Nathan, is there any technical thing they have to do for that? Not really. They just have to sign up. Now, the other thing is, 
hospitality guys or guys and ladies, make sure that you sign up because you don't want to lose a space to somebody from architecture and the arts or journalism or business. So make sure that you sign up as well for these classes. But no, they just, these classes, they just sign up for it. They don't need to talk to an advisor. They don't need really do anything. Just go on to their My FIU and sign up for the class. It's filling up nicely, so I'm happy to report that. Also, a couple, I think my um, spirits class does technically say you have a prerequisite. There is not a prerequisite. Please talk to your advisor to uh, take that class because you do not need to take the prerequisite in order to do it. We're trying to work with faculty sent to get that off, but there is a little delay. So make sure that you, you get that done as quickly as possible. Fantastic. So guys, should we move into our uh, topic du jour, if you will? So we were asked, uh, uh, actually our producers, our lovely Yuli and Christina, are nice enough to feed us. They're smart enough to feed us topics, knowing that we'd go all over the place. So I like the fact that they're, they're, both, they're both smiling right now, so that's good. Uh, and they asked us to kind of incorporate something I mentioned last week. And it's why we like what we like or why you like what. Uh, and then at the same time, we'll ask uh, Professor Dodge as well as Chef Massey to kind of bring in their areas of expertise and why certain recipes and certain cocktails or better yet, you know, pairing of cocktails uh, as well as food together because it's very similar to the wine world. But so let me talk a little bit about uh, and guys, feel free to ask any questions and I'll incorporate both of you into this topic. Now, for a handful of you that taken either food and beverage courses with me or had me talk or heard me talk about wine-related topics, one of the first things I always love to talk about, particularly in the world of food and wine and of gastronomy, probably better off put, is why we like what we like. Now, I'm going to try to keep this relatively straightforward, and there's been a great amount of study done by a master of wine by the name of Tim Haney, or Han I. And Tim, uh, his colleague, uh, we actually do... Uh, projects with him with FIU for the wine business. We do a challenge every year. But well before that, Tim wrote, wrote a great book called Why We Like What We Like. And he took a deeper dive into looking at what our taste sensitivity is all about and how this all works. Now, just to kind of speed this process up a little bit, he narrowed it down to that taste sensitivity, why we happens and why we enjoy certain things. Well, he also talks about culture and learned behaviors and then also our life experience, how that all kind of happens. Well, taste sensitivity really comes from genetics. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, all right, and how we're kind of, our physiology is made up. And then, of course, our life experiences can also change our perception of why we like what we like as well. For an example, I can give the same cocktail, the same glass of wine, the same mm-hmm, right, to two different people. One person would say, damn, Connors, this is the best thing I ever had. And the other person would say, Connors, this sucks. And it could be the same exact glass of wine, the same exact cocktail, and so forth, because we're all made up differently. Again, why we like what we like. Now, to kind of put this in a little bit of a nutshell, and for those of you guys that are real nerds like me, uh, we definitely be taking a deeper dive into some of this stuff in some of our courses. Uh, so check it out. And definitely in the intro course, I'll be talking about these things but we all have tasting cells also known as taste buds now some of us for example might be falling into about twelve thousand different tasting cells or taste buds per square centimeter in our tongue overall where some of us might be less than 500 now i can pretty much guarantee a few things that chef massey and chef dot oh, from chef dodge there but dodge you're a good cook also fall into this category known as a tolerant taster Right. And then from a tolerant taster, that individual that might have 
somewhere is in the, like a less than a thousand tasting cells might have these certain characteristics that we'll talk about. Where on the other side of this spectrum is a sweet taster, which I think are absolutely fascinating. And sweet tasters really kind of get a bad rap out there, where the white Zinfandel drinkers, the Moscato drinkers, if anyone knows any of them, John's smiling now. There's nothing wrong with that. And me being a sommelier and a wine educator, you know, you, you come up through the ranks and those are shunned upon or, oh my God, you're like white Zinfandel? You're shunned. That's the so sweet. It's bad for you. And after six years of consulting for the cruise line, trust me, you know, I had tons of white Zinfandel drinkers and it's the vast majority out there and there's nothing wrong with that. But there is a reason why they like what they like. Hey, Chef Carlos, can I ask a quick question? Yeah. So... I have a lot of Cuban friends, a lot of Haitian friends, a lot of Jamaican friends, and I don't know if they drink their coffee with sugar or they drink their sugar with coffee. So is that like what we're talking about right here? The ones that just put tons and tons and tons of sugar in whatever they drink? Yeah, you know, and coffee is one of those things that I always call the great equalizer. Now, think of it, anyone listening, right? Now, I know that Chef Massey and Professor Dodge, you both you know, drink your coffee black. For the most part, John, I know you like tea as well, you know, but you drink it black. Now, that's a good indicator that you have a higher threshold for what is known as bitterness, right? And that overall bitterness perception you get. So it's kind of interesting, right? Where when I was younger, I don't know about you guys, I used to add a little bit of dairy and sweeter sweetness uh, to my coffee as I've gotten older. You know, I still add a touch of milk. And this took me a little while to figure out why I do that. And I do that because that's how my parents drank their coffee. And it doesn't bother me here at the house. I have a little espresso machine. I drink that in the morning. If I'm down just grabbing a fast cup, I won't put anything in it. I'll just drink it black. But I drink it with milk. And that's a learned behavior. So I picked that up. And that goes back to life experiences and how that influences what you like is what you like. But coffee is the great equalizer because Dodge, those people you know that put a lot of shit in their coffee, you know, if it's going to be the sweeteners or even like the, the fake dairy product that has, you know, the overall French vanilla flavor, amaretto flavor, you know what, you know what I'm talking about, guys? Double Frappuccino, Mochaccino, Al Pacino. Yeah, exactly. All those guys that are there, those are what the indicator. But another great indicator, and the kind of, I can go on on this topic for a long time, but believe it or not, and Massey, you're going to get a kick out of this, is salt. Salt is an, also an indicator. I used to call them, you know, salt monkeys, you know. Anyone, you know, John, you know those people that put salt on your food before they even taste it? Oh, yeah, that is, that is a pet peeve, obviously. But, you know, that's what people like. If they like that, you talk about one of the things about people like what they like. And even the people that like the white Zinvendel, not my personal taste, but I'm never too prideful not to give the guest what they want, whether it yeah. be food or, or beverages. And that was a great point. No, and, and that's it's the way of thinking where, you know, from a culinary standpoint, you know, oh, my food goes out. And I'm guilty of this, John. You know, my food mm-hmm. goes out perfect every time. The table doesn't need salt and pepper. Well, how the hell do you know that? Because yeah. you can't taste the way that, that person tastes. And it's, it's not even a great debate because it's a fact that some people, you know, want that or they need basically that salt why because salt will mask bitterness salt will mask bitterness this is why you see you know young children for example 
where I wrote down in my notes here, you know, the broccoli spinach, you know, remember, eat your vegetables, right, when you were little. And it was so painful for those particular younger children because why? They had this higher sensitivity to taste, right? So these hyper tasters that are out there, they would taste that broccoli, taste the spinach, and it'd be so bitter to them, they would put salt on that, and that would actually mask the bitterness. So that's why these, again, sensitive tasters or hypersensitive tasters, they love salt. As a matter of fact, they need salt. There's nothing wrong with this whatsoever because it's really what it's all about. And what happens is that they become trained, for a lack of better terms, you know, where they, they understand that, oh, I want to try something different. You know, my nephew Brody, God love him, awesome athlete. His kid's going to be a rock star. He still survives, you know, and he's a great athlete on chicken thing or chicken nuggets where I know as he progresses, he's going to have to start incorporating these other things to his diet for health reasons and for athletics and so forth. But right now, he, uh, you can just tell by the way he eats, by the way he communicates and everything else. It could also go, John, you know, I don't know, uh, behavior where a lot of hyperactivity has to do with sensitivity to taste and that type of stuff. So there's a whole science to the physiology of the whole thing. So there's, yeah, there's nothing wrong with these. But here's another, uh, and I'll throw it to you guys in these two, uh, the last two ones, because we talked about the coffee factor. We talked about the salt factor. And when I was training someone around the world, I would have them begin to ask questions to guests of, you know, what do you have in your coffee in the morning? And that would then be able to guide them in the right direction. We actually did something called the progressive wine list. This is 100 years ago when it was very much in fashion. The cruise industry is always a few years behind and use that as a tool. And then I had the sommeliers on the floor watching dining behaviors of the salt on the table and so forth. But like us, though, at the table, how we're consuming stuff like sweet and low is another one where sweet and low to those sweet tasters. If anyone knows any of them, it would taste so sweet, almost metallic to them, where I would ask again the sommeliers to watch the behavior. So if that guest was ordering iced tea and only use a little bit of that artificial sweetener, that they would go, oh, okay, that person has this type of tasting profile. And individuals like us, I'm going to throw it over to you guys, you know, that we have this tolerant type thing. A, we're all three of us are male. We're all of a certain age where we're getting older, where our taste buds begin to dull, kind of like our personalities. Um, but you like that one. But at the same time, you know, we all enjoy big, bold red wines, right? I know we do. And the flavor component of alcohol, our palates, it's very pleasant. And in some cases, we find it to be sweet. So this is just the tip of the iceberg of this stuff. I mean, it can really go on to where, you know, a super taster comes from. But using this type of knowledge to kind of, A, build out a wine program, develop a menu, train your staff. It's a higher level of thinking that I've always been fascinated by. And this critical thinking ability to say, okay, why is this taking place? It's just not that white wine goes with uh, white meats and red wine with red meats. It's not the case at all anymore. It's really taking a deeper dive into it all and how it comes from. And Dodgy, I think cocktails are very similar to that as well when you start taking a look at why we like what we like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So cocktails like wine, like beer, it all is going to depend on, on really our, our taste buds and, and our attitudes, but also what we're eating. So um, Sunday, Sunday night for Easter Sunday dinner, I made a beautiful ribeyes. So last two weeks ago, Chef John Noble Massey came over to my house and did a, a demonstration. And he made some um, 
shrimp and then he flambéed it. So I thought it'd be a great idea. So I took my fry pan out and I, I had my steak on super high with a little bit of cracked peppercorn and salt. And then I put some butter in there and it was basting with the butter and the garlic, took the steak out, threw in a shot of cognac. Now I think I need to paint the roof or the ceiling in my kitchen. The plane went a little, little higher than I was hoping for. There might have been some screaming, but after the flames were abated. That's before the anniversary celebration. That was before the anniversary celebration. So after the fire was out, we had the steaks, which were perfectly medium rare. We had them with a, a very nice old vine zin. John, Brian knows that I love old vine zins. And it was just, the, the, it took all the flavors, it put it all together in one glass of wine. So we had the, the steak, I had some baby heirloom potatoes that I roasted up nicely and some asparagus. But really this wine brought everything together. And cocktails can do a lot of the same things that we think of when we think of wine pairings and, and beer pairings. So maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but there, there's these... You can go to a restaurant and every course you'll get a different tasting of wine that will complement. You can do really the same thing with, with cocktails. Now, when you're choosing cocktails to complement your, your meal, you really want to look at what the flavors are and the ingredients of the cocktail. Now, flavors of wine, that comes from the, the yeast and the aging and the maturation. And if it's aged in oak or stainless steel, what kind of grapes and, and the time of the year and the terroir and all of this. Now, with cocktails, you might have a lemony flavor in your cocktail, and that's as simple as, well, you added lemon. So let's take a French 75, for example. French 75 is a classic cocktail from World War I era, champagne, gin, lemon juice. Really simple. And that pairs great with something that would have lemon juice in it. So maybe a, a chicken piccata with a lot of lemony flavor or um, if you were serving it as an appetizer with like a crostini with some lemon basil ricotta on top, that, that would pair very nicely. Also, other things you want to look for when you're pairing is aromatics. So if you're having a, a, a meal with a lot of basil, maybe a mojito, where instead of you um, using mint, you would use basil and don't muddle the basil, but slap the basil. And that slapping of the basil is going to fragrant your whole house just by slapping the basil. But slapping the basil um, will also um, make your drink more aromatic. And while you're drinking it, then you're tasting even more of the basil coming out of the foods. Now, a lot of times when we're thinking of these classic cocktails and really how they pair, and I mentioned the French 75, and the French 75 is a really cool, old, classic cocktail. Like I said, it was it was from World War I era. It's a French cocktail, obviously, French 75. And it, was, it was created in the New York bar in the Ritz Paris. Now, some people say that this was Hemingway's go-to drink, and I am a big Hemingway dork. And I will say that when Hemingway moved to Paris in 1921 with his wife, Hadley, I think that was his second wife, they, they did live very close to the Ritz. And I'm sure they sat at the, the New York bar and they drank these French 75s. But I know that was a question, was this Hemingway's drink? And Hemingway had a lot of drinks. Hemingway was like Churchill. Hemingway would pretty much drink anything that would be put in front of him. Uh, one of the... I'm, yeah, God love him. I'm going to do a whole Churchill thing one day because 
my favorite bar that I've ever found was in Cuba at the Churchill bar at the, uh, the national hotel in Havana. And I happened to be upon this bar and it is just a great little bar, but going through what Churchill drank on a daily basis would, would give you cirrhosis just thinking of it. So we're going to talk about that one day, but I digress because that's what I do as all of my students know, I'll start on one subject and end up three subjects later. So back to pairing cocktails, it, it is something that's done. It's something that's done pretty regularly. If you go to a Mexican bar, you're probably not going to drink a Chardonnay. Most likely you're going to have a margarita. If you're at a good Mexican bar, you'll have a, a, a mezcal drink or something that really is bringing up the flavors of the tacos and the mole and, and all the spices that go into that. I like to pair smoked fish with vodka. I think that these, the, the vodka brings out a lot of that smoked fish and actually have a, a tub of smoked fish in the, the fridge that I'm having tonight. Also, I've been to, to barbecue restaurants that they are a combination barbecue bourbon restaurants where they'll have full walls of bourbon to complement the barbecue. Brian, we went to a restaurant in New York. It was a barbecue joint. What was that? Remember? The smoke. Blue smoke and blue smoke. That whole wall was bourbons and ryes and whiskeys and scotches because the smoke that is coming out of these bourbons from sitting in in old smoked barrels or charred whiskey barrels really is bringing out a lot of that smoke that you would find in your your, your barbecue. So it's a great pairing resource. It's a great thing to do. I recommend it. Uh, there's a lot of great websites that will help you on your journey to pair different things. But Massey, what about uh, using alcoholic beverages as a flavor enhancer when you're you're making your drinks and making your, your food at home? How do you feel about that? Well, uh, I am an equal opportunity consumer and preparer with any alcoholic beverage. So as much as I enjoy drinking them, I also enjoy cooking with them. And if you start on the savory side there, Connors was talking about the classic roast chicken. There is nothing that can compare to a really delicious, traditional French coco van. And you're taking several bottles of wine to reduce down over several hours of cooking and adding that tremendous flavor to a, to a dish. Uh, that's a classic. And when you think about adding alcohol to any dish, it's really primarily a flavor enhancer. Uh, it does not have any uh, tenderizing properties. Uh, it, in essence, the acidity in some of the alcohols end up cooking the outside of any protein, similar to what you'd, and now I'll geek out for a little bit, similar to way you would have a citrus cook the outside of a ceviche. Now, a ceviche, uh, you know, thinly sliced or cut seafood or shrimp, very thin, smaller protein, cooks the outside. And, and, and if it's uh, shrimp, it may, the, the shrimp may be just a little bit raw. However, if you've got a rack of ribs, if you've got a big, thick steak, if you've got a chicken breast that you're getting ready, you, you 
guys are talking about grilling and doing those kind of things. It's just going to affect the outside and add flavor. And that's probably about it. The sugars in many of the alcohols also add a little bit of glaze. Caramelizing the sugars will add a nice caramelized glaze to anything. And one of the things that I love about the chicken cocoa von dish is the color that when you cut into a cocoa von, you get that exterior. It's like a half of a centimeter of really ripe red effect of the wine. And you don't need to use your $100 bottles of reserve Bordeaux for the cooking of any anything. A, a reasonably priced, uh, drier red wine is great for cooking any type of, of meat. Uh, I would shy away from those white Zinfandels that Connor's mentioned. Uh, leave those to the consumption on the boat with the pink champagne. And uh, <laughs> rose, that's what rose. I enjoyed best. Rose, rose, rose. rose. Yes. Yes. Well, yes. no, no, no. <laughs> At the right time of year by the pool, lovely. Uh, but not in cooking, not in cooking. The other thing that I love to do is use them in dessert and use them in different soaks and simple syrups for even the banana bread that I made this week. I happen to make a rum glaze for that. And if I'm going to encourage anybody to use any particular kind of rum, I would highly recommend Bacardi. They have a delicious dark or Oakart rum, try them with different flavors and different brands of the Bacardi. Uh, try them side by side. I encourage you to do that and figure out which one you like best. They all impart different flavors. I would encourage you not to use the alcohol by itself. Cook the spirit with a little bit of simple syrup, and that will give it the best flavor from there. Speaking of that, John, I got a question for you that, that dovetails off of uh, our friend there, uh, fireman uh, Nathan Dodge. Almost burning his house. <laughs> uh, how does one avoid uh, burning their house down if they're going to be flambéing uh, in a home kitchen where they don't have one of our hood systems? So, you know, one of the first things that I, I did with alcohol was make bananas flambé. Bananas flambé can have a very happy ending or can have a scary ending. I prefer. The nicer ending. And so does Dodge. If you take the pan that you're cooking, whatever it is, whether it be those steaks or the bananas for the bananas flambe, you measure the amount of alcohol you have in advance and add it to the dish off the heat. And then uh, that's what the I did pan. wrong. You know, please, please, if any everyone is listening out there, please do not pour directly from the bottle. That is not going to have a pleasant experience for anybody. And, and I would venture to say that perhaps that is something that Dodgy did. Good thing I wasn't there to supervise. No, actually, I did use a shot glass. It was a, a one and a half ounce shot of brandy. But I did not take the pan off of the fire. I left it on the fire. I threw it and whoosh. It was quite spectacular. I will tell you. It was an amazing thing. I kind of wish I had the camera on. Not that the insurance company would have liked to see it, but it would have been fun just for this to show you guys what I almost how I almost burnt down the house. Nice job, Smokey the Bear. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So 
That's now I've always heard, and I know this is kind of true. Now, when you throw the out throw, when you slightly, lightly pour your brandy in and you get a nice flambe and you're burning up some of that alcohol, how much of that alcohol is actually evaporated? Do you are you making a completely zero alcohol dessert there? No, you you can get pretty close to that when it's cooked for a period of time. Usually you cook anything, whether it's grilled in a saucepan or flambéed, you lose more than 50% of the alcohol. You're cooking it for 50 min- 15 minutes. You, you lose more than 50% of the alcohol. You can cook it for a couple hours. It gets down to very little, maybe 5%. That's left. You also lose those calories, by the way. I know that was a question that we got from the Bartenders Guild was, you know, how much of the alcohol and calories are evaporated? It's depending on really on the amount of time that's that's cooked. The typical liqueurs that you'll use aren't really your 151 rums you're you're dealing with more liqueurs and so those have 50 60 proof 30 25 30 percent alcohol and your end product is going to have very little alcohol and calories from that spirit or wine when you add it so to, to just to finish up on that if you are cooking and you you do have somebody in the house maybe with a dependency problem or someone who has issue with alcohol as far as it will it can give them health issues. If it's cooked for a long time, you should be fine. If it's something that just can be flambéed and served quickly, then I would recommend not using. If you don't need to use it, don't use it. But um, I know that there are people out there that cannot have any alcohol in their system, so please make sure that you yeah. You and, do and not guess- listen to this and say, "Oh, well, Chef Connors and Chef Massey said it'll be all right." So make sure that you use your best judgment. And the most probably important thing for everybody that's listening, make sure that you clearly identify if there's alcohol cooked in a dish, because those folks that that have a concern with consuming alcohol in any way, shape or form need to be aware that it's in. Same way that we would say if if a dish is made with chicken stock or beef stock or if a vegetarian is present at the house. Excellent. Yep. Good stuff. You know, one of the most popular questions uh, I used to get continuously when I was traveling and doing a lot of uh, national talks was calories uh, also in wine. Uh, I used to get this a lot where someone would say, well, how many calories are in that and that type of stuff? And Nathan, you brought up a real good point. Um, And Chef as well, you started talking about uh, the sweetness factor and why we talk about uh, RS or residual sugar. And a good rule of thumb is for calories, particularly in wine, is the average for a five and a half, five to six ounce glass of wine is about a 130, give or take a little calories um, per glass. Now, depending upon the RS, the residual sugar in that wine, that's where the calories can actually go up or down. Uh, And that's really where the calories lie uh, in wine. There is calories in alcohol, uh, but not as much as what's going to be found in the residual sugar uh, that is left in the wine after fermentation. So the average is about 130 calories per glass. Did you guys know that? Did not. Thank you. Thank you, Connors. We need to invite Dr. Gump on this next Ooh, yeah. time just so that we can get really geeky with the science behind 
wines and spirits and beers. That, that'll make everyone really geek out. Yeah, I like it. We can do that, definitely. Being on quarantine, being on dis- social distancing and isolation, I don't know what today is. I, I read a meme that said we're changing the names over the days of the week to this day, that day, tomorrow day, yesterday, and today, which I kind of like. So today is two, today. What are we doing today? What's the plans for the rest of this afternoon? What, do we have anything going on? John? I am in the process of starting my tomato garden. So I planted some seeds last week. Those seeds have turned into little sprouts. And hopefully I will get tomatoes by the next, by the time, well, hopefully after this quarantine stuff is over. So I'm excited about fresh tomatoes and I will share them with both of you when we get something to pick. Thank you, Chef Massey. So I have hours of, uh, and here comes a plug too, but I do have hours of emails that kind of responding to, I just got a bunch in from Bacardi HQ because everyone's in the kind of same position, but I am finalizing the budget for the Bacardi Center of Excellence now, and we're happy to announce, uh, not this is unofficial, that we'll be offering scholarships in the near future for students as well. So there is a line item for scholarships. So there'll be a process out for that. So keep an eye out for that. But a lot of that type of stuff is just, you know, taking place in the background of, of before we launch anything that's going to be uh, in the future. And of course, uh, Bacardi Teach uh, is moving along quite nicely. And that's going to be our online uh, learning platform in partnership with Bacardi HQ, as well as Team Enterprise and the brand ambassadors. So we're looking forward to that. That's been in the editing process. If any of you have ever uh, edited anything before, it takes a good amount of time. After that's all, all said and done, uh, I get to paint some patio furniture. I know it sounds, it's a busy day. Woo-hoo! Busy day. For me, it's the last week of our seven-week semester. So uh, we're on spring. Spring B is over this week, which is crazy that this week has gone so fast. So I will be getting grades together, grading papers. I have 30 or so 10-page papers that I'm looking forward to reading. Yeah. Sure. Looking forward sure. to reading. Yeah. That, that'll be done out probably by the pool. Then after that, I have a virtual dinner with Joel Feigenheimer and, and Sherry German. So the idea behind that is they supply the wine. For those of you who don't know Joel and Sherry, they, Joel is a professor at the school. Sherry owns the American Fine Wine Competition. So she drops off wine ahead of time. And we sit and virtually have a nice dinner and talk about the wine that she has selected from her wine cellar it is a it's a difficult exhausting night it sounds going terrible. through different wine it's, yes. oh, it's so much work but you know someone's got to do it so that's my excitement uh we want to wish luck to all of the students who are doing their finals this week and next week it is an interesting time most of you are planning on coming in and sitting in the lecture hall with all of us and taking your finals putting your textbooks and not your textbooks but yeah your your books and your note bags and everything else at the front of the, the classroom and sitting there quietly taking all your tests. But you'll be doing these online with you with nothing but you and your computer and your dog or cat. <laughs> so. All right, gentlemen. So guys, once again, thank you all for listening today. If you want to learn more about what's going on with the Bacardi Center of Excellence as well, 
as any of the new courses, feel free to reach out to any one of us. My email is bconnor, C-O-N-N-O-R-S at fiu.edu. I'm more than welcome to answer your questions or I'll make it up on the spot. Uh, or I'll find the right person that knows the answer for you as well. Follow the Bartenders Guild on Instagram as well as FIU Hospitality. And last thing, and I'll throw it over to you guys for your final goodbye. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, it's always a pleasure. I wish we could do this in person. Uh, we do have a great video of where this all started up on LinkedIn. So follow us on LinkedIn if you're a LinkedIn person. Uh, we've got a lot of hits on that video, guys. So uh, people enjoy that. Yeah. And that's where the genesis of this whole idea said, let's keep the banter going and keep it alive because... We're here for you guys, so uh, let us know. Nathan Dodge, anything in the closing, sir? Again, the same thing. Make sure you follow the FIU Hospitality Facebook and Instagram pages. All of those links will be in our show notes at the bottom of this. So we are right now being hosted on the FIU Hospitality podcast server. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we will be up on uh, iTunes. So that's the plan is, and then you'll be able to find us anywhere with whatever podcast provider you use. I want to thank Ulitsa and Christina, our, our beautiful and wonderful producers. Thank you guys. I'm sure they're smiling and waving and all blushing. Mm-hmm. John, do you have any final things? No, just additional thanks to Yuli and Christina for keeping us on point. We kind of need that. Thanks to both of you for another entertaining podcast. And then thanks to the students and anyone else that's listening there. And this time it's important to stay connected. And we're just looking at this as a vehicle to help keep you all connected with us. So please enjoy your day. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon.